A very good morning to you all on this, the 10th of July. And uh, it almost seems a shame that we have to the blind close so that we can see the screen because what a beautiful morning it is. Indeed, it is great to be able to come together as God's people and to sing of God's glory and to worship Him together and to hear His Word preached. Now, we're delighted to have, um, uh, speaking personally, uh, both Hannah and Caleb with us this weekend because there's a certain event happening next week. Um, And I'd like to ask them to uh, come forward, and they're going to um, read the Bible to us this morning. The reading is from John, um, beginning in chapter 4, verse 46, and continuing on into chapter 5 to verse 18. Um, So he came again to Canaan in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judah to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see the signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judah to Galilee. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man who was there who had been an invalid for 38 years When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Well, let me add to Nigel's welcome. It's uh, lovely to have you with us. And let me encourage you to turn back to John's Gospel, John chapter 4 and 5, we're going to be looking at. And if you picked up one of these diaries on the way in, you'll find uh, that passage printed there. So feel free to follow 
along there. Um, as part of our summer series of teaching, we have started looking at some of the signs in John's gospel. Um, if you were with us last week, we started into that. And we observed that, that John tells us at the end of his gospel that actually if you were to try and write down all the things, all the signs that Jesus performed, you know, you wouldn't have enough books in the world to record it. And he says, but these, these have been recorded that you might believe, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you might have life. And so it's interesting that John handpicks, he he curates, if you like, seven signs that he wants to include in this gospel as directed by the Spirit, because he is convinced that as we look at those signs in particular, we will be convinced of who Jesus is. And again, if you were with us last week, I introduced that by, by saying that if, if, if you ever meet someone who does something out of the ordinary, if they're a bit eccentric, or they do something that, that just is... is, is something you've never really encountered before, the question you would ask is, I mean, who does a thing like that? And that is the question John wants us to ask when we read his gospel. When we read about the things that Jesus did, John's saying, you've got to be asking, who does a thing like that? Who says a thing like that? So last week we thought about, who turns water into wine? Jesus' first sign. And today we come to the second and the third signs and we're going to ask, who does a thing like that? And the thing that has stood out to me as, we've, as I've reflected on these verses um, is that, you know, John brings us really close into the action, doesn't he? In fact, he brings us close enough to hear how Jesus speaks. His words are significant here. And the question John would have us ask as we see the power and the authority that accompanies Jesus' words is who speaks with words of power like this? Who speaks with words of power? Well, the longer you've been around, the easier it is to be cynical. Um, we are heading into another round of, of political drama, aren't we, in our country? Um, and probably this morning, I haven't checked, the list of people who are vying to be the next prime minister has probably grown by two or three or four. And we will hear them in coming weeks. They will all make their pledges. They will promise to rebuild this or that, to cut this or that, to show leadership on this or that. And for the cynics who've seen all this before, um, we say, I'll believe it when I see it. Don't we? I, I'll believe it when I see it. Because we've been through this before. And because we know that witnessing something and seeing a thing happen is far more reliable than just taking someone's word for it. And we do that in everyday life. And depending on how serious the stakes are, we'll, we'll, we'll live out this mantra, I'll believe it when I see it. So, for example, if you're, in the, if you're in the car park at Tesco and someone says, oh, I'll put that trolley away for you, well, you don't then follow them to the, to the place where you drop off the trolley just to make sure that they've done what they said. You don't say, well, I'll believe it when I see it, let me come with you. 
No, I mean, it's putting the trolley away at Tesco, right? You'll take their word for it. But if you've got an important document that you need to send, say it's a passport, say it's the paperwork on finalizing a house, well, you don't, with the greatest respect uh, to any any postman in the audience, we don't just take the word of the Royal Mail that they'll deliver it. No, you send it recorded delivery. You want someone to sign for it. And if needs be, you can check who signed for it and at what minute of the day they signed for it because it's so important you need to see that it gets there. You're not just going to take someone's word for it. And that's what makes this second sign in John 4 so interesting to me. Because we're dealing with a situation where the stakes could not be higher. Someone's child's life is on the line. Are they just going to take someone's word for it? That everything will be okay? Surely, if there's ever a situation you find yourself in, when your child's life is on the line, you would say, I'll believe it when I see it. I'm going to make sure that someone has checked on them. I'm going to make sure they're receiving every possible treatment they can have. But it's in the midst of that kind of urgency that we learn that when it comes to Jesus, hearing is believing. Hearing is believing. John brings us back to Cana, verse 46 of chapter 4. That's where Jesus' first sign took place, he reminds us. Jesus has since been in Jerusalem and now traveled back via Samaria. He's had an encounter at at Jacob's well with a Samaritan woman. And word has spread about what kind of person this is, someone who can help you when you're in need. And so we find someone travels from Capernaum to Cana, to seek Jesus' help, a journey of about 15 miles. We're told it's an official, which is probably to say a royal official, someone who serves in the court of King Herod. Herod was really a regional ruler who ultimately did answer to Roman rule, and I think it's fair to say he wasn't terribly popular with the Jews who he claimed to represent. So an official of Herod would perhaps not be top of the people I'm most likely to help when they're in need list. But the man is desperate, isn't he? His son is near death. The boy is too ill to be brought the 15-mile journey to Cana. Instead, the official hopes to convince Jesus to walk the 15 miles back with him. And twice John tells us that's the desire of the man, verse 47 and again verse 49, that Jesus would come down to heal the boy. And Jesus' initial reply, well, is just what Jesus so often does, is he, he tests what's there. Verse 48, he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And it's, it's interesting, the reply is not just to the man. That word you is in the, is in the plural. He's, he's addressing um, you lot, Unless you lot see a sign or see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And what he's saying there really is, you know, your motto is, I'll believe it when I see it. I'll believe it when I see it. And Jesus indicates that he wants something more from people than just amazement at when he can deliver a miracle. 
I mean, is this going to be the case for this official who has come to Jesus? Is he just another one who will say, well, I'll I'll believe it when I see it? Is Jesus just the last roll of the dice for this man? Or will he have greater confidence in Jesus? Well, he's tested in that, isn't he? Look at what Jesus says in verse 50. He says, go, your son will live. If you were pleading with a doctor in that circumstance, and the doctor said, ah, on you go, I'm sure he'll be fine. Uh, what would your response be? Um, How do you know? You've not even asked about his symptoms. Have you seen this sort of thing before? Isn't there something we could do? Are you not willing to even take a look at him? Please just come. And it's that that makes this man's response just so remarkable in verse 50. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Can you imagine? He believed the word when he came to Jesus, hearing was believing. He journeys back. And it's 15 miles. He's already traveled 15 miles to get to Cana. It's not enough time to get back home that same day. He requires a stopover somewhere. And the next day, he meets his servants who are on their way to tell him that the boy is going to be fine. They tell him that the fever that looked like it would kill him has lifted. And it lifted at one o'clock yesterday afternoon. And the man realizes that it was at one o'clock yesterday afternoon he was speaking with Jesus. What a remarkable thing this is. That it wasn't just that Jesus said, yeah, yeah, I'm hearing what you're saying. Don't worry, he'll probably be fine. That's not what he was saying, was it? But actually at that moment, at one o'clock that afternoon, Jesus spoke in Cana and 15 miles away in Capernaum, the power of those words healed this boy. This is the power of the words of Jesus Christ. Not just wishful thinking here, but powerful words that are effective anywhere he determines. And this is the pattern of Jesus' ministry. He speaks. And he speaks authoritative, powerful words. This is why it is such a grace from God that we have his word to us. He speaks to us. He has given us his word. The Bible would confidently attest of itself that that all Scripture is breathed out by God. This is what he's given to us in his word. These same kind of authoritative, powerful words that Jesus spoke in person in Cana of Galilee. And that we're able 15 miles away to heal a boy who was on the verge of death. 
And what we can take from this is that when Jesus speaks, we can take him at his word. A remarkable testimony of faith from this official who was ready to walk back seemingly empty-handed. But actually, he walked back trusting that Jesus Christ, who had promised, would do what he said he would do. And this is the great privilege of being a believer in Jesus Christ. The Word of God tells us that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ to those who belong to Him. And so there are the great assurances of Scripture. You know, that this world, what we see around us is not everything that there is, but this world in all of its sadness and sorrow is actually heading for a definite destination, a place where God will redeem all things, where He will dwell with His people, where it will be a day where there's no more sickness, where there's no more children on the verge of death, where there is no more sorrow or death or curse. And that is a promise that comes to everyone who's a believer in Christ. And here's the thing that we can take from this this, this event in John's gospel, this sign is crying out to us. You can take Jesus at his word. He has said he will do it. He has made that promise to you. Now go. It is the promise that Jesus gives his people that he will be with them. And we think, well, how can he do that? I mean, he is in heaven. That's true, isn't it? He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and yet he says he will be with us. Well, you know, where Jesus speaks, his authoritative word goes out and accomplishes its purposes wherever it is needed. He is at the right hand of God in heaven. His words are no less, his word, his promise is no less effective for you because of where he is. And he has given you his spirit. And there he works to fulfill all that he has promised to do. Not at all limited. This is why it's a great privilege to pray through Jesus Christ, the one who intercedes for us. Because when we do that, there is not a square inch of this universe that we could not pray for and him not be able to reach. So there is that second sign where Jesus heals this official son and where we learn that when it comes to Jesus, hearing is believing. But we've included today the third sign that that John leads us into in chapter 5. And John moves us back to Jerusalem here. Um, Jesus has returned to Jerusalem. One of the festivals are taking place. And we're introduced to what must be one of the most uh, tragic scenes uh, that you you could imagine. It's as if what is described for us here is one of the the sickest uh, practical jokes that anyone could ever play. We're taken to this scene by the sheep gate, so this is one of the the entrances in the in the wall around the old city, nearby the temple, to this pool called Bethesda, and um, it has these uh, porches round the pool, five of them, and in these porches. 
Um, as John records for us in verse 3, lay a multitude of invalids, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And if you're eagle-eyed, you will see that verse 4 is missing from John chapter 5. And um, the reason why it's uh, not in the main body of the text is because it probably wasn't part of uh, John's gospel as originally written, but an explanatory note put in the margin and so if you, have a, if you have a footnote in your Bible, it will tell you that these people were waiting for the moving of the water, waiting for an angel of the Lord to come down at certain seasons into the pool and stir the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed, and whatever disease he had, um, uh, whatever disease he had was healed. Um, so you have here then, particularly, we zero in on one man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. I mean, this is the, this is the tragedy of this scene. You have a man who is paralyzed, sitting in a porch beside a pool, waiting for the waters to be stirred up in the hope that he could beat the rush of people to get into the pool first and be healed. But of course, the man is paralyzed. This is the ultimate vain hope. I mean, what is his hope in here? That just, he has this superstition about the water, it's going to be stirred up, and somehow, maybe someday, There'll be some turn of events that would mean even though I cannot move from where I am, I'll get into the pool first. And this man has been paralyzed for 38 years. It probably suggests he wasn't always crippled. Something had happened. Uh, often the gospel writers would speak of someone who uh, was blind, for example, from birth. That's not what is said here. A specific time is put on it, 38 years. Perhaps there'd been some illness, some accident that had left him like this. But 38 years later, even though his commitment, and we don't know how long that's gone on for, but his commitment to this superstition about the pool at Bethesda has not yielded anything for him. He's still waiting in the same place as he's been waiting for years, presumably, no healing, no improvement, and yet he's still there, still hoping that this will be the answer. And what we learn about Jesus in this sign is that Jesus replaces superstition with what we really need. He replaces superstition with what we really need. And I reckon that when we heard Jesus' question to the man in verse 6, we maybe thought it sounded a bit insensitive. He goes to him and says, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? But when we think about it, and when we think about the emptiness of what this man had been trusting in, the the insanity, I suppose, of keeping on coming back, getting someone to bring you back to this place when it can yield, there's no hope of it yielding anything for you. It seems like a question that's fair enough. 
If you had a very good friend who was telling you that they were going to try the healing power of crystals, I think it's fair enough to say, well, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? The man's answer shows that he isn't clear on what Jesus can do for him. He still thinks he needs someone, but in particular, someone who can carry him into the pool at just the right time. Because you see, someone always beats him to it. And Jesus is here to say, and not for the first time in this gospel, these are not the waters you need. These are not the waters you need. Um, If you were here last week, we, we saw how Jesus at the wedding feast of Cana replaced the water that was used for ceremonial cleansing He replaced it with wine, as if to say, in your need here, these are not the waters that you need. He replaced them with something that was able to take away the groom's shame, replaced them with something that was able to bring full joy. Earlier in this chapter, you may be familiar with the story of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman, and he tells her that what she needs most is not the water in Jacob's well, but him the one who can give living water that wells up to eternal life. And here in John 5, to this paralyzed man, he replaces the water of superstition with what's really needed. The man needs Jesus himself. And so Jesus speaks. And again, look at these powerful words. Who speaks with these sorts of words of power? Verse 8, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And here is the power in those words in verse 9. We're told at once, at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Just as we saw with the royal official's son, The moment Jesus speaks, it happens. What he says happens. And again, we're being introduced to to patterns of Jesus' ministry here. One of the things I'm interested in is how Jesus deals specifically with this man. Uh, John tells us that at at the pool of Bethesda, there lay a multitude of blind, lame, and paralyzed people. But Jesus comes to seek out one man. One man. Jesus doesn't transform this man's life against his will, does he? There's the question there, do you want to be healed? Are you more caught up in this identity you have as the paralyzed man who can never get into the water first? Or... Or, 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 or do you want to be healed? Do you want to be something different? Are you more caught up with this identity? Does it just have too much of a hold on who you are for you to trust me? You see, so often with these healings that Jesus performs, we're, we are being given something of an object lesson of what Jesus has come to do. The human condition before God is exactly like that. The Bible says that all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God. That is, it leaves no exceptions. All have sinned. And what we find in, 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 in what is entailed in that being a sinner is that we are bent out of shape. We are unable to reach God, unable to know God. We have a sinful nature, turns us away from Him. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul would describe um, Christians before they came to Christ as being alienated from God, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And the message of Jesus comes to us. It is a message that says you can be healed of this sin sickness. You can be restored to God. You can be restored to the shape you were designed to have, to know God, to glorify God. You can be forgiven your sin. And it is all wrapped up in this individual hearing his word, responding in faith not hoping in some superstition for these things, not even hoping that some stirring up of the waters in your past will be enough to see you right with God, whether that was done in a church or anywhere else. No, it is Jesus who the sick needs. It is Jesus whom the sinner needs. And it is, this, it is this personal commitment of Jesus to save, to heal, that will lead him all the way to the cross. It's there that he bears our sicknesses away, our sins away. It is there that he stands in the sinner's place. And he calls all who will come to believe in him, that when he was able to say on that cross that it is finished, that he has stood in the place of sinners and borne the penalty they deserve, and it is finished, it's complete, that for all who come to him, they will find all the benefits of that. This leads into a controversy about the Sabbath. Um, you see that it's particularly mentioned at the end of verse 9. That day that this event happened at Bethesda was the Sabbath. And the fourth commandment says, you shall keep the Sabbath holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. And of course, for those who wanted to police those things, well, you need to have a definition of what we mean by work, right? What is the work that we're not allowed to do on the Sabbath? Well, there were some well-intentioned men who drew up a list of additional rules around this specific part of the law. And you see, these rules were there just to be safe, we don't want to accidentally end up breaking the Sabbath commandment, do we? So here are these additional laws to keep you safe. So someone worked out how far you could walk on the Sabbath. One yard further and you've broken it. And another determined that carrying your property from one location to another 
that was work. And so when they see a man carrying his straw bed under his arm, well, the Sabbath-breaking alarm goes off in their heads. And they're on him like a shot in verse 10, aren't they? It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. Look at the man's answer to this question. He says, verse 11, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. If I was to ask you, what is the most amazing part of that reply? If you were to hear someone give you that reply, what is the most amazing part of it? Someone said to you, the man who healed me told me to just pick up the bed and walk. You would say, hang on, are you the guy who's been sitting at the pool of Bethesda for the last 20 years? You've been healed. You've been healed. You, you couldn't move, could you? You've been healed. That's wonderful. What grace God has shown. Let me rejoice with you in what God has done. That is wonderful news. That's not how the story goes, is it? Alas, the thing that the man says that stands out more than anything to these particularly religious Jews is that the man said, take up your bed and walk. How dare he tell you to take up your bed and walk? Who told you that you could break our rule about the Sabbath? Here is the tragedy of what religious externalism does, outward acts of religious observance. Here is the sort of hard heart that trusting in rule-keeping produces. It produces this kind of self-centered, self-confident, self-righteous religion. And it fails to see God at work. And the main reason why it fails to see God at work is because they have no need for God to be at work. They can do all the work they need to do, thank you very much. And Jesus says in verse 17 that he says, I do this work on the Sabbath because my Father is doing this work. You see, the Sabbath, the, the seventh day, the day of rest, was, a, was, was God's gift to humanity. And, and, and the seventh day as a day of rest still is God's gift to humanity, whereby a rhythm of life is established. One day in seven is a break from work and a chance to deliberately reorient life back towards God. Instead, for these religious Jews, it had become a stick to beat people over the head with. The Sabbath was the least joyful day of the week because it was such a burden. But you see, it wasn't like that for Jesus. And it wasn't the burden for this paralyzed man on this Sabbath, not until these religious guys got involved anyway. He was healed you see, in all their commitment to the letter of the religious law, they'd forgotten what it was there for. It was there for people to draw near to God, 
to express their devotion to him. And here, God is at work. And the most religious people in the land were the blindest to see it. We are not here. This church does not exist to offer people a new set of religious rules. This church does not exist to to make people's life more burdensome. No, Jesus is here to heal, to restore, to give life to the fool. This is the kind of language Jesus would use to speak of what he's come to bring. And so this church exists. I'm here today to offer you him, to present him to you, and to say whatever your hope might be in, your hope of being right with God, your hope of having something to look forward to after death or dealing with the guilt of sin that you carry daily, to say if it's anything other than Jesus Christ that you're hoping in, then it is not going to get you there. And the reason is because only Jesus can deal with the core issue of it all, our sin, our sin-loving heart. That's what he's come to change. And that's what he offers to change for all who will come to him, believing in him. Another question for you. What if this man, after his encounter with Jesus at the pool of Bethesda, if he decided afterwards that he would go back to the pool and take up his old place in uh, portico number three, let's say, and sit there and wait for the stirring of the waters again. That would be pretty absurd, right? That would be, uh, it would be inexplicable. Why on earth would he do that? The thing that he's wanted to be free from, why would he go back? And this is exactly what doesn't happen, or certainly not what Jesus wants to happen, because you see in verse 15, Jesus calls this man to live out a new identity as one who follows him. Um, verse 14, I beg your pardon. Jesus says, see, you are well. Something has changed here. You're something, the core of who you are has changed here. This thing that has been your excuse for never being able to do anything has changed now. You're a new person, so sin no more, so that nothing worse may happen to you. It's an interesting thing to say. Sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. It almost raises the question in our minds, doesn't it, that is Jesus saying that there is a link between this man's suffering and sin? Well, the reason why there is any suffering in our world is because of the presence of sin. When our first ancestors fell into sin, well, into the world came all of the consequences of that with a sinful nature that human beings now have. They are all too ready to do ill to one another, to cause each other to suffer. With a cursed earth because of sin, things go wrong. It is, it is out of harmony with 
how it was created to be. It is out of harmony with human beings. And so, yes, there is always a link with sin in the world and the presence of suffering. Sometimes that link is more direct than that. The one who, who drinks to such a point that they have liver disease lose their ability to function normally, lose their job or their family. They, they're, they're suffering, and it is a direct consequence of sinful behaviors, right? Now, whether or not that's the case with this man, I guess I would say we can't be sure. We don't have enough information to go on. But Jesus does say boldly that suffering in this world is actually a reminder that there are worse things that can happen to us than suffering in this world. I mean, what, a, what, a, what a, a remarkable thing to say to a man who's been paralyzed, hopeless, for 38 years. And believe you me, there was very little ready charity available for people in that situation back in first century in Jerusalem. And Jesus says to him, Go and sin no more so that nothing worse might happen to you. Well, what, what is there that could be worse? I mean, he could never be paralyzed for another 38 years. He's not got enough life left in him. What could possibly be worse? Well, it's the understanding that our sin always has consequences. And not necessarily physical consequences here and now. Jesus is drumming home to this man that you're well now. Don't let that allow you to slip into a false sense of security. Don't forget. Change the direction of life away from sin to follow me because what would be the point of being free from your suffering now just to allow yourself to fall into the infinitely greater suffering of facing God's judgment because you wasted your life in sin rather than following the Savior. And in doing this miracle for this man, surely isn't this testifying to him that the promised Messiah is here? Here is the accompanying sign. You can listen to this man. You can have it verified. This is God's man. This is the God-man. Trust him. Follow him. Don't live just for what you can get now. Live for Christ. Sin no more. Let there be a new pattern to your life. There is a God in heaven, and we will all stand before him. Follow Jesus, lest something worse happen to you. Let's be very clear on the order of things here, just quickly. Jesus is not saying, uh, live a sinless life, and then you'll be good enough for God. That is not what he's saying. You notice the order of things here? Jesus comes to the man first, changes the man first, calls him to the life of following Christ then, after that. There's the foundation in place. Life is changed by the encounter with Christ, and then he says, now come follow me. Doesn't say, but obey all the rules and then you'll be good enough. That's back to the old ways. That's the external religious route that could never get us there. But Jesus says, I've changed your life. I've given you a new identity. You belong to me now. Now come follow me. That's what he says to all who will come to him. This is still early in Jesus' ministry, but we're finding that Jesus is already on a collision course with the religious leaders of his day. 
verse 16, his activity on the Sabbath, um, which they deem as work, but I mean doing good deeds, helping people, that's not what the Sabbath is for. But more than that, the sort of statement that Jesus delivers in verse 17 is what could really get someone in trouble. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus' words are powerful. And the answer to our question that we're thinking about this morning, who speaks with words of power, is actually given to us from Jesus' lips right here. My father is working until now and I am working. And John explains the significance of that to us in verse 18. This, is, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath in their eyes, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This was just not how ordinary Jews spoke. Sure, Israel as a nation, as a people, they could and they did refer to God as their father. But for the individual Jew to speak as Jesus does, to speak of my father, and to be able to say that his work is my work, Jesus is is putting a little equal sign between God and himself, isn't he? Jesus is equating God and himself. He's saying the Father and the Son are inseparable in the work that they do, inseparable in this mission that I've come to accomplish. And so the work that you see me doing is the work that he is doing. And this is one of these unambiguous moments in the Gospels where we don't get to simply say, ah, well, Jesus was a good teacher with a lot of wisdom for us to learn from. Because we can see here that Jesus was most certainly not satisfied with that kind of claim for himself. He, would, he, was, he was grossly disappointed with those who could only see him as a good teacher who had some wise words to impart. Here he is speaking in terms that makes him equal with God. Well, what is equal with God other than, well, God's? This is the sort of language he uses to express that he is God in flesh. Who speaks with words of power? God, come in flesh, does. Who else could speak here and at the same time enact a healing 15 miles away? Who else could command the man who'd been paralyzed for 40 years to get up and walk? But what do you think? Who speaks like this? Who speaks with words of power? Maybe you've never really thought that through. We would love to give you a copy of John's Gospel today. Um, Go and read these signs that John sees as so convincing. And if you have a friend who's a Christian, or if you would like, there'd be people who'd be very happy to read it with you. Uh, what a wonderful thing to do. 
Maybe you've never trusted in Jesus Christ and you need to come and hear him calling you specifically who steps into the midst of the multitude of those who are blind and lame and paralyzed and he comes to you and he says, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be forgiven? Do you want eternal life? Let me urge you to trust him. And maybe you're a Christian here today and you, you believe all of that. You have no difficulty answering the question, who speaks with words of power? But if we believe that it is Jesus Christ who is God, who speaks with words of power and authority, then, then we receive those words of power as authoritative in our lives. We want to be obedient to him. We want to love God. We want to love our neighbor. We want to glorify Christ in all parts of our lives. And Maybe again, it is to come and to read through John's gospel and be amazed again at who it is that has saved us and called us to follow him. Who speaks with words of power? Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He speaks with words of power, words that come to you today and bids everyone to turn to him. Amen. Uh, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for your patience as we've run over time a bit. If anyone would like to speak about anything that's been said or mentioned in the service, I'll be down in this corner for a while. Uh, do come and speak to me. We have teas and coffees, so please do stay around for that. And as we close, let's say the words of the grace to one another. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Amen. God bless.